Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David, and I get to be the pastor here at Redeemer, which is a huge, wonderful privilege. So glad that you guys joined us this morning, and we are in the halfway point in a series that we are doing uh, that's asking some of the why questions behind the what of Christian faith called uh, the logic of faith. We're trying to look at some of the logical reasons behind this incredible uh, belief in, in God that we have. And, uh, and what I'm hoping to show is that these reasons are not just logical, but they're also incredibly compelling. And some of the, uh, honestly, uh, the answer that God exists is, is the most logical answer that exists to a lot of life's deepest questions. And the fact that it's not just a God that exists but loves us is, is one of the most compelling reasons that, that I think uh, we all should know in our hearts and see the, the joy of the Christian gospel and see that it's true. Uh, there was an interesting piece of data that came out this last week done by a research group called Barna that tracks some of the um, trends that happen in American culture over time. And uh, they came out with a really interesting uh, piece of data on Generation Z, which you may not know which one that is. It's the newest generation that's been kind of defined. It is after the millennials who we're all tired of hearing about. And, um, and it begins right there at the turn of the century and goes to about 2015. And what they found in Generation Z is that the number of people who are going to identify as atheists is double that of, of the millennial generation before of it. That is an incredible shift in our culture, which is indicative of some of the, the shifting sands that are happening in America right now. But it also speaks to the, the critical importance of what we are doing here in worship this morning and in this series, Logic of Faith. Because let me tell you, those 20, 2000 to 2015 is so many of the kids that are, that are part of this congregation. These are the kids that are going to be friends with our kids. These are going to be our kids that are going to be raising questions that are friends have and we need to be able to give the whys for the what of our belief in Jesus and so I just really continue to encourage you and I know that so many of you had because I've gotten such positive feedback on this series keep leaning in do the head work of following what's going on here because th these are critical conversations and will be for a very long time and if you put on your thinking cap like your third grade teacher said you will really benefit and know knowing the why behind the what of faith is really where I find some of the greatest joy in knowing that God loves me and that Jesus died for me. And, um, and, and I just uh, encourage you all with that this morning. Okay, today we are going to ask the question, um, does it even matter if God exists? Does it even matter if God exists? You can kind of also rephrase this question like this, what, what difference does it make in my life in the way that I live my life, if there is a God or if there isn't a God. And we're going to kind of kind of go in there and do some, some, some work, but we're going to begin actually by me giving you one of the biblical answers to that question. And we're going to open up in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you brought your Bible, that is awesome. You can turn there now. If you did not, in front of one of the chairs in f uh, b before you should be a Bible. I'd really encourage you to take it out and follow along. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. It's, uh, it comes right after, uh, I believe, Proverbs. Um, and yes, good. Whew. Don't want to miss that one as the pastor. Um, uh, it comes right after Proverbs. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And um, 
And before we get into it, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come before you and try to try to ask the most challenging questions that come to our minds that we can uh, open up your Bible and bring to it the deepest existential struggles that we have. Lord, I, I just uh, pray that as we try to wrestle with this issue of meaning and finding meaning in our life, that, that you would help us to see your answers and to see how beautiful your gospel is right in the center of this question. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 9. <clears throat> the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north and turns to the, to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So Ecclesiastes begins with what is an incredibly famous and actually quite sobering refrain. It's translated meaningless in the scripture that we read. You may have also heard it as vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And either way, it's, it's an opening of a book with a really strong dose of realism. And that realism comes to us from the person referred to in verse 1 as the son of David, who was uh, King Solomon. He was the son of King David, and he was also known in Israel as the other name that he's given here, the teacher. This was a man who was famous for his wisdom and who is now sitting back and looking at the course of his life in this book of Ecclesiastes and offering the people of Israel and us uh, some, some thoughts about what he sees when he thinks and looks at life. And here it is, this, this thought that is sobering, that there is something about life which is profoundly vain. You know, underneath that word uh, vain, meaningless, however you translate it, is a Hebrew word uh, called habel. And um, it brings to mind images of a vapor or a breath. And, and what that does is it tells us it's not just a, a meaninglessness or a vanity that Solomon's aiming at. He's, he's also trying to bring our mind to, um, to, to the ephemeral nature of life, to the fact that life itself seems rather fleeting. It is like a breath that you breathe in the cold air and you see in one moment and in the very next moment it's gone that there's something about life that is just like that. And I was reminded of that this week when I um, had the privilege of, of meeting with a woman 
who is very sick, probably at the last stages of her life, and who was reflecting on something that she heard Billy Graham say years ago. She, uh, Billy Graham was asked, what has been the most surprising thing about your life? And immediately he responded, it's brevity. And, um, and in the same way that Graham responded, this, this woman was, was on a bed that she may not ever get up from and thinking everything went by so quick. She was running through the things that had happened in her life and, and it just couldn't escape this thought that, oh my gosh, I was here and now I'm, I'm gone. There's this fleeting nature to life. There's something about life that is here one day and then immediately gone the next. And this is what Solomon is, is bringing our attention to. But it's not the only thing that he is saying. And it's really important that we nuance the point that he's trying to make because there is this phrase that is embedded in Ecclesiastes. We heard it twice. It's given actually dozens of times throughout the book. And it's this phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. Verse 14 says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are habel, a chasing after the wind. Notice in this sentence uh, that under the sun changes the meaning, or it potentially does. I have seen all the things that are done, and all of them are habel. We don't need under the sun in this sentence. There's a purpose and a point to it being there. And for years, when I read Ecclesiastes, I actually kind of assumed that it was kind of this artistic addition to what was being said. It's a poetic book, and aren't all the things that humans do in life done under the sun? Maybe it had something to do with the, the, the fact that there is like a toil and a struggle, and underneath, especially in the M Middle East, the sun, we would feel that in a very serious way. But actually, it's not what Solomon is trying to communicate with this little additional phrase. And um, and what one of my Old Testament professors did, uh, a, an incredible teacher named Sandra Richter, uh, when, when we looked at this book, is she said, under the sun is actually a, a Hebrew idiom that has a very specific meaning. And it's this, under the sun means living life as if there's nothing but what exists under the sun. So life with this perspective is what's in front of me. It's what I can see, I can taste, I can touch, I can observe. Life is, is the natural world that I behold. But if it's under the sun, that's all it is. That's the implicit thing being communicated in this phrase. Like I can see and, and look out over the course of my life, but there's nothing beyond the grave. There is no life after life. There's nothing eternal that gives significance to what I'm doing now. There may be a spiritual dimension, but it passes and ends and goes away just like everything else in the world. It's essentially describing what is under the sun, an atheistic outlook on life. And so the more nuanced point that Solomon is making throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that if we are under the sun and that's it, then in that scenario, there's a futility, a vanity in the very nature of life itself. He is saying if we're just part of the natural world, we are no different than these endless cycles that he points out there in verses 4 through 7. We're generations of people that toil in our labor, and we come and go, and the earth remains, and what's the point of it all, right? We are like the sun that rises and sets and rises and sets and rises and sets 
and it's wearisome more than you can even imagine because it's never any different at any time. We're like the wind that blows round and to the north and to the south, but what is the point? Where is it going? What's its aim? That's what life is like. We just live. We don't know where we're going. And so Solomon, to our question, does it really matter if God exists, would give the answer, well, if God doesn't exist, vanity, vanity, everything is utterly and completely meaningless. What difference does it make if God exists? Well, God is the one that gives us meaning in our life. And friends, that's actually the biblical answer to this question on a big scale. It doesn't get into the specifics, but it says that it it matters tremendously if God exists because God is the place from which we derive meaning. But if we're talking to a world which doesn't follow Jesus and isn't interested in starting this conversation in the Bible, let me suggest to you that opening up the book of Ecclesiastes might help them understand the Christian perspective of things, but we have to be able to communicate a logic that's, that's behind that that may go beyond the Bible. And so let me do that just now uh, drive home some of this logic by describing to you a scenario that was first given by a man named J.P. Moreland to talk about this question of meaning. And it goes like this. Everybody familiar with the game Monopoly? Yeah? Everybody know how to play Monopoly, right? Roll the dice. Hopefully you'll get some money. You buy hotels. You rule the board, and then you gloat over the rest of your family on on how all that turns out, right? That's how Monopoly goes. So say I invited you over to my house to play a game of Monopoly, except when you get to my house, you notice that there are some things that are different. I've put uh, a couple of coins on the board. I've thrown some jacks on the board. I put a television remote on the board, and I also tell you, by the way, the refrigerator is fair game as we play Monopoly. And you look at me confused, like, what? I say, okay, yeah, yeah, you can do whatever you want in this game. You just kind of play it uh, how, you s- how you see fit. Uh, you can throw some jacks. You can toss some coins. Um, and let's go. Your turn. And so you look at me, and you're kind of like, okay, right? So you roll the dice. You take all the money, and you're kind of looking at me as you put hotels all over the board, thinking maybe you've won, right? And then I say, And then you sit down and say, my turn's over. And I say, okay, great job. I look at you right dead in the eye, and I come up, and I just flip over the board. Like like you used to do when you were losing against other people when you played as a kid, right? (laughs) At least I did. Uh, uh, With my brothers especially. But um, so so I I sit down and say, my turn's over, and you're kind of annoyed at this point. And so you right-side the board up, and you put your hotels back, and you say, that's my turn. Uh, please don't mess it up. And you sit down and you're done. I say, okay, great. So I go over to the refrigerator and I start making myself a sandwich during my turn. I turn on the television with the remote. I throw a few jacks and then I flip over the board again, right? And if that happened, if this was our game of Monopoly, what I know would happen is that it wouldn't be after too long that both of us would be utterly tired of this completely nonsensical game. We would just be doing one meaningless event after another We would be playing the game in some sense, but what are we aiming for? Where are we going? How do you know who wins, right? Uh, The reason Monopoly is fun and it works is because we know the end purpose of the game, to rule the board and get all the money, right? But if that's not the defined end and there's no understood means by which to get there, 
it's not very fun to play Monopoly, is it, right? You guys got that? You see that? It's, it's the, the purpose at the end that makes the, the, ga- the moves of the game meaningful and that they work towards that purpose. So, so, so here's where I'm going with this, and maybe you see it already. But as it is in a game of Monopoly, so it is in the game of life. The way we discover real meaning in our lives is to discover that life was given with a purpose, that you and I were created with intention. We are for something. And when we discover what we are for, then the moves and the direction that we take in life has meaning because it's towards an end, right? As a Christian, you know, we easily answer these questions when we give our lives to Jesus because God is the one that then determines the purpose of our life and sets forth the meaning and the purpose of the moves within it. We know what our life is for and we're guided by the purposes of God. But here's, here's the real rub. If life is only lived under the sun, if you don't believe there's a God, what's, what's the purpose of the game of life? What, what are you aiming for? You may be playing the game, but where, where are you going, right? If God isn't there and all we have is what's under the sun, we can do stuff. We can go to the refrigerator and make a sandwich. We can turn on the TV. We can play Monopoly, right? Uh, but, but what's the end goal of life? What's the purpose? And, and, and this is a, a real, real problem. There's nothing that bestows meaning into life outside of life that, that gives it an objective sense or, or a purpose. It, we are nothing but a equation, which is time plus matter plus chance, which does not end up ultimately equaling meaning. It ultimately ends up equal meaninglessness, right? And so we are just one little endpoint on an evolutionary schema, which is just as arbitrary and no more meaningful than the existence of mosquitoes, the flu virus, or a pile of rocks. You are no different from any of those things. And it's a really sobering reality. And, and I, I will say one thing that I have come to appreciate about many people who hold the position that all there is to life is under the sun, that God does not exist, is that they have been willing to admit that this is actually the logical outworking of the position that they hold. The famous philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said it perhaps most clearly when he said it like this, if God does not exist, then life is absurd. This was a man who did not believe in God, who was wrestling with meaning and who had come to a conclusion that I cannot make sense of anything that I see or do if there isn't anything outside of the natural world before me, right? Here's another thinker, contemporary atheist, a guy from Duke University named Alex Rosenberg. Um, What is the purpose of the universe, he says, there is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It's full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that last line that he uses there is a quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth, which is a time where Macbeth is crying out in this nihilistic voice, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound of fury and signifying nothing. And, and what he kind of realizes and what a lot of folks who see life only as under the sun realizes, even the, the fact that we're asking existential questions is also meaningless because there's nobody to ever answer us. We just experience these tensions 
And, and they are. They're just a part of life, like the flu virus or a pile of rocks. It's just part of what happened and who we are. And so when we do ask the questions, if we're honest, uh, what we're going to find out is the only answer we get back is silence. This is what Richard Dawkins, the very famous atheist today, says, the response will be nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Blind, pitiless indifference. You know, this last spring... Uh, my son and I, Johnny, four-year-old boy, were growing a garden, and I was growing some dill plants in that garden because I think dill is delicious, and I like pickles, and, um, and not too long after my plant got up and going and was really starting to grow well, uh, a caterpillar found its way to my plant and started consuming it, and I decided, because Johnny was with me, I'm going to let this thing kill and eat my plant so we can watch it grow and maybe become uh, a butterfly, make a cocoon. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we got to watch as this, this caterpillar got bigger and bigger and my plant became deader and, and deader. <laughs> and I was hoping at the end of the process, it was, and I think it was just about time for this thing to put a cocoon on, and we would get the, the pleasure of watching it become a butterfly. Except that one day, uh, after work, I came out, and Johnny was in the backyard, and in his hand, he had a caterpillar that he had just smushed. <laughs> and this was the caterpillar that uh, we had been watching. It was not going to become no butterfly. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said to Johnny, I said, Johnny, you killed the caterpillar. Why, why did you do that? And he looked up at me. Nothing. I said, Johnny, if you were going to kill this caterpillar, you know, why couldn't we at least have moved it or done it before it killed my dill plant, you know? And he looked up at me, and guess what he said? Nothing. Blind, pitiless indifference. <laughs> okay. Johnny is the, is the silent universe in this example. But let me, let me point out, we are not Johnny. Also, like, the, the, the real sobering uh, reality is that we're the caterpillar, right? Our life has no sense or purpose. If it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. We get smushed just like everything else. And, and it's, it's actually a really sobering, challenging, dark thought. And one of the things, I, it's interesting, I thought I'd use some Huber to lessen the effect of what we have to think about here, but um, this is what a lot of atheists do when they actually are wrestling with this question. They, they dodge it with humor. It's something that I've observed. There's a famous story about Woody Allen, who was known as an atheist, and he was at a dinner party one night engaged in a philosophical discussion. And someone said, hey, Woody, what do you think the meaning of life is? And, and he famously said, you ask me about the meaning of life, good Lord, I don't even know my way around Chinatown. Right? So what he's saying is, it's just too big for me. I can't even think about it. Um, it's, it's not actually an answer to the question. It, it's, it's a dodge. Um, there's a very famous atheist uh, who passed a few years ago named Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens was probably one of the wittiest, sharpest, articulate uh, people to have ever engaged in these conversations for the last few decades. Uh, I actually learned a lot studying Hitchens and trying to understand some of his perspectives on things. But he was in a debate where he was asked this question, you know, Christopher, you don't believe in God, so what sense do you make of the meaning of life? How do you make sense of your life? And, and Hitchens, who usually had really fantastic, excellent answers here, 
uh, ended up dodging it uh, with humor. He said, well, I guess whatever cheers me up. And he said, um, and and it was actually kind of funny when he said it, I'll admit it. He said, uh, I guess what cheers me up is gloating over the misfortunes of other people. And it was it was a joke, right? Uh, and honestly, it was kind of funny when he said it. But w- when you think about it, he only does that because the question for him is not funny at all. He is hiding behind humor. It's a dodge, and he doesn't know how to deal with this from his worldview because he looks at his life and says, "I can't I can't make sense of of why I'm here." And this is because the deepest questions of life we can avoid them with humor, but they don't go away. Right, And when we are faced with things that are serious and not funny, like our own mortality, we are sitting there definitely wondering, what was the point of it all? What was the meaning in my life at all? And this is why um, a person named Albert Camus, who was a very famous philosopher, said, uh, being extremely honest, there, there was only one important foundational philosophical question if there was no God, and that was judging whether or not life was worth living at all. The question is the question of suicide, right? Because this is, is a reality that he and a lot of others had wrestled with if there was no God at all, that life was that vain, right? Fortunately, I think we all know that there are people who do not believe in God uh, who have figured out how to live a, a life that is meaningful and happy, right? Um, and so the, really the question is, how, how do you do that? You know, um, and I've had this conversation with folks who aren't quite there with God, and, and the answer that they give is, is really interesting. They say, well, I know there's no, objective, there's no objective meaning in this world. I know there's no God. So what I've decided to do is assign meaning to things in my life. I'm subjectively going to determine that this is what's going to make my life meaningful. So, um, for instance, the great film director Stanley Kubrick uh, said it like this, the very meaninglessness of life forces man to create his own meaning. And, and that is what K- Kubrick did with films, right? This is a man who dedicated his life to film and, and, and made some really wonderful films. I've heard other people uh, say, I've committed my life to discovering a cure for cancer. I want to help other people, or I've decided that my life is going to be about my kids. I want to be the best kind of parent that I can be. And let me say, I think those are great answers. <laughs> I want to be as generous as I can. I am so glad those folks have, have found meaning in their life in those ways. Um, I, I think that if more Christians would give their lives to altruistic purposes, you know, we could give a better evidence for God. I, I'm just really glad that there are people who see meaning. And even if they don't think that it's objective, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong in spite of themselves that what they're doing really is meaningful. Um, but I, I think the other thing that they all realize and which they have told me is one of the weaknesses in this argument and taking this position is, is, is one, like I mentioned before, when you're faced with really serious things and you've just subjectively assigned meaning, there's, there's this big airiness underneath the decisions that you've made in life. Well, why did it matter? And, and then the, the, the second one is, is the fact that the moment somebody else assigns meaning subjectively to life, that is in conflict with the meaning you've defined, you suddenly are at an impasse. There's no way to go forward or determine or arbitrate between the two people. And let me give you an example of this. Imagine my seven-year-old son, Jesse, who absolutely loves 
Minecraft, who sat through the first service and his mom is busy doing something else, who is in my office right now playing Minecraft. He's busted by all of you now. Um, no. Uh, he decides uh, for himself that his, his meaning in life, because he loves it so much, is going to be playing Minecraft and building Minecraft worlds. And 20 years from now, when my seven-year-old is 27, he is still living in my home on an iPad playing Minecraft, right? He subjectively said, this is what my life is about. Now, if I'm not an atheist, I even if, sorry, even if I am an atheist and I'm Jesse's parent, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be okay with that assigned meaning in his life, right? Is there anybody who would be? Like, because this is not a good use of a life, right? You have, you have given up your life for something that is not meaningful. But here, here's the thing about this position. If there is nothing but what's under the sun, how am I to tell Jesse that that's actually a good reason? Who am I to say that my idea of what's meaningful is any better than his? It's just subjectively assigned. Right? Do, do you guys see that? That there's no basis on which to decide between either one of us. And he can make that decision. And really, if I'm going to be logically consistent, there is nothing I can say to him at all. And I don't mean to dwell on this, but I brought it up last week. But what do you do then with a group like ISIS, right? Who has said that one of the most important things that they could do with their life, what makes them significant, what makes their life meaningful, is to be a suicide bomber and end the lives of so many other people. If you only assign meaning subjectively, on what basis do you tell them that they are wrong? Right? If life has sacred worth, where does that come from? If all we are is under the sun, it doesn't come from anywhere. It's just a subjective assigned meaning that, that, that I've made, right? And, and so I, I hope you guys are seeing uh, you, cannot, you cannot say between one and another viewpoint wi without some sort of objective standard who's right and who's wrong. Subjective meaning suffers from the same problem as subjective morality, which we talked about last week. In conflicting viewpoints, anything that is arbitrary or subjective is impotent to arbitrate. Okay, y'all see that? So, so th that is the, the real problem here. And, um, and I, I just now want to kind of turn this around and, and, and show it now that we've gone through all that and seen that, that assigned meaning doesn't work. We've seen... That, that there's a pointlessness to life if, if, there, if all we are is under the sun. I want you now to hear some of the truths of the gospel that really shine so beautifully in the middle of this. And, and I would say at first like this, if we have a deep sense that our lives have meaning, that we matter, that other people's lives matter and have meaning, the answer is because they do. Because you were right about that. Our life is so meaningful. And to the person who sees only life is under the sun, it's more meaningful than they ever realize because there is a God who loves them, whether or not they recognize it or not, and gives objective meaning and value to their life, whether they want to accept it or not. There is this, if we think that there has to be more to life than what we can taste and see and feel, there's got to be more to this than what's under the sun. What that suggests suggest to us is that there is something above the sun, that there is a God who loves us and who has 
who, who gives meaning to every step we take because he's formed us in his image and who now promises us a life beyond the grave, right? Here's some of these promises of scripture. There is a God who thinks our life is so meaningful that he's counted the hairs on our head, that he knows all of our innermost thoughts, and that he says to each and every one of us, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God thinks our lives are so meaningful that when we question uh, whether or not we can make it through another day, whether or not there is purpose and meaning, when we're in that dark place, we hear the promise of God saying to us, listen, I have plans for you. I know the plans that I have for you. And they're plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And this God who, who thinks that our lives are so significant and meaningful uh, and who wanted to be in a relationship with each and every person who he has ever made, right, thought that, that he, that was so important, you know, that he gave his one and only son in Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's just a beautiful, beautiful promise. And it speaks to us in our deepest doubts and in those dark times when we see that our life is in vain without God. And friends, I just, I just want to encourage you. Um, you know, God gave Jesus for you. That's how meaningful you are. God, God created a world for us to enjoy and... and <laughs> Hold on to that because it is the one thing that will anchor us when, when those doubts do come and those anxieties and depressions, those voices are in our head. We need to hear the voice of the God who created us that says, you deeply matter. I love you and I sent my son to die for you. Amen. Let's pray. God. I thank you that somehow in the wonder and mystery of human life, which is rich and full and beautiful because it is not just under the sun that we can see you and in, in everything that you've made, Lord, that we can see your heart in, in, in the things that you have done in the world and the way that you speak to each and every one of us in our dark moments, Lord. And, and we feel you and know you when we're on the mountaintop. And I just pray that, that as we hold that truth and we hold that love, um, Lord, that you would embed it in our hearts and by the power of your spirit, it would be known by us in a voice that speaks louder than any other that we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Lord, I just pray that we would know the depth of how much you love us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.